Welcome to the second bonus episode of Why Not Both. In effort to continue a running theme of wishing I were still in Iceland, I decided that it would be a good idea to publish another interview from last time I was in Iceland. I hope that you enjoy it. So I'm here with Arne Ingolson. Thank you so much for joining us on Why Not Both. My pleasure. So my first question is often, what do you do? And the follow-up to that is, is there a better question I could be asking? What do I do? I'm a musicologist. Uh, I do research. I teach. I give lectures. And I'm also the artistic advisor for the Iceland Symphony Orchestra, which is Iceland's leading orchestra, national orchestra. Mm-hmm. And you also brought a lovely stack of books. Yes, I write books uh, <laughs> every once in a while. Uh, I mean, that's part of what I do as a, as a musicologist, a music mm-hmm. historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I write a lot about Icelandic music, mm. uh, both new and old. And actually, I have two books that just came out last week, one in Iceland and Icelandic, mm-hmm. which is about uh, medieval and, and sort of music manuscripts written in Iceland from around 1100 to 1800. Oh, Basically wow. sort of a survey of Icelandic music history through the manuscripts that have survived containing music. Mm-hmm. And then the other book is called Jón Leifs and the Musical Invention of Iceland. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a biography of Iceland's first great classical 20th century composer. Mm. The first nationalist, you could say, in music. The first sort of like the Icelandic Bartók. Oh, the wow. first composer who went into the countryside, collected folk songs from the people, and then used them to create symphonic masterworks. Oh, that's fascinating. Capturing the essence of Iceland, also the Icelandic nature, wrote you know, music that's titled, you know, Gaysid and Hekla, so descript- descriptions of volcanoes, or mm. the nat- capturing the natural forces of Iceland through music. Wow, and you're clearly passionate about this topic. I can see from like, no, the way that you're engaged in it. A, I mean, he's a, he's a fantastically interesting subject uh, because he's, I mean, like, I guess like many interesting subjects, he's he's problematic. I mean, you know, there are Yeah, I noticed you used issues. the word nationalist, which, right. like, in modern parlance is yeah. sometimes right. a very... Well, yeah, nationalistic, I guess, is maybe the better word uh, because it has sort of less overtones of... Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, at the time... I mean, classical music was considered one of the ways in which a nation could assert its nationhood in a Mm -hmm. way. Um, Mm -hmm. And he grows up at a time when Iceland is asserting its independence from Denmark. We were a colony of Denmark until 1918. Um, And one of the questions that were sort of very actual in Iceland in the first decades of the 20th century when, you know, we were gaining and had gained independence is okay what do we do now how do we how do we show the world that we are actually a nation among nations Mm. Uh, so you know composers start writing symphonic music we get a symphony orchestra a national theater Mm -hmm. all these institutions that people felt went along with being an independent country i see Uh, so he's very much sort of involved in that the spirit of that sort of uh, asserting one's nationhood in a way, through through the arts. That's fascinating that you wrote about him, and it it kind of like pinged in my brain. Like, how does that dovetail with what you do as an artistic advisor? Like, do you feel like that knowledge informs what you do in the other half of your life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, 
the work that I do with the Iceland Symphony basically is sort of laying down the programs, mm -hmm. the conductors, the soloists, sort of deciding uh, what the orchestra plays, uh, having a broad overview of the repertory, both in terms of just in general symphonic music mm -hmm. uh, of all periods and styles, but also specifically of Icelandic music, right? Uh, which is, I mean, we're actually sort of required by law because we're a state-funded orchestra. Oh. We're required by law to support Icelandic composers, right. present Icelandic music. Uh, so knowledge of that repertoire is, is crucial to what I do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. And I'm curious now, like, why, why is he controversial? Um, well, he was... Let's say he had a volcanic temper, for one thing. <laughs> uh, he was he was quite a quite a personality. I see. I see. Um, that was that was one thing. He wrote dissonant, modern sounding in a way modern sounding music, when Iceland had, you know, no real musical history, no tradition. People mm -hmm. just weren't ready for yeah. that kind of music. I mean, we sort of. It feels like Iceland sort of had to go through the romantic period of music sort mm. of a hundred years After later just because we needed that before we could become modernists in a way. I see. Uh, and so he was he was perceived at the time to be here very much ahead of his time. I see. Not so much in, in other countries because they had obviously moved further ahead. Right, right. Um, and then there was also the question, I mean, he sort of... Um, I'm not sure if the right phrase would be to say that he was politically naive or politically mm. opportunistic. Oh. Uh, he had a he had a very interesting sort of, so he he studied as a kid in Iceland and then he went to Germany to to continue mm -hmm. his studies mm -hmm. in the 1910s 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, married got married to a, a pianist who he met at school. Uh, who it turned out he didn't know about this at the time, but it turned out later was was Jewish, was a full mm. Jew, uh, who had converted to to uh, Christianity, but oh, was, wow. was like fully in terms of mm -hmm. bloodline, which is yes. what the Nazis were interested in, was yes. fully Jewish. Yes. Um, however, they they stayed on in Germany after the Nazis came to power. Um, wow, that sounds also, dangerous for both involved. Exactly, but well, some. Some Germans actually didn't realize, you know, the danger. She apparently didn't want wow. to move any more than he did. Than he did. Um, and for a while, the Nazis were kind of intrigued by the idea of an Icelandic composer who wrote symphonic scores based on folk music. I mean, that to them sounded... Well, so to them it was like a curiosity. Yeah, well, it sounded very sort of pure and Aryan and uh, sort of possibly their like ideal of, kind of sort of purified music that was free from all these influences of, you know, the southern whatever. Wow. Um, but then it turns out they really didn't like his music when they heard it. It, it <laughs> sounded better on paper. <laughs> Because it That's was like the clashing of ideologies yes, with exactly. the actual music. Because itself. it was it was too dissonant and then they found out that his wife was Jewish and that was sort of the end of everything. Oh my um, goodness. But there's a there's a really fascinating reception history there as to his career in Germany. Wow. And that whole sort of tug of war between him and and his family and, and the authorities. Oh my who, goodness. Who sort of like him at the start but hate him at the end. Wow. Yeah, because I was like, when you were describing when he went there to study, I was like, mm. oh, that would have been the height of the time to study in Germany. Right, yes, exactly. Oh, my goodness. 
Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. And then he was also the, the guy who brought the symphonic, Iceland, symphonic music to Iceland for the first time. Wow. Living, living in Germany in 1926, he convinced one of the top German orchestras to come to Iceland. I mean, he was passionate about this because he felt like uh, in order for there to be musical progress in Iceland, mm-hmm. we need to actually hear what a symphony orchestra sounds like. Right. You know, we, can't, we can't become passionate about this if we've never heard the thing. Well, in a way, how it's almost the imagine? same abstraction as right. like them being passionate about the idea of it, but not the thing. Sure. And like, so how can you imagine a symphony orchestra if you've never heard it? Right. So he convinced one of the top German orchestras to travel to Iceland on their summer holiday without any pay wow. to play 14 concerts in 15 days. He must have been rather mm. charismatic. Um, when he wanted to, <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think he could be charismatic and passionate, and he could also be incredibly annoying. Got it. It's sort of the, the picture that I, I get. And it sounds like kind of uh, researching what you do would definitely inform what you do here. Like, what, what do you find that you most want to bring when you're, like, bringing things to Harpa, for instance? Like, what do you want to bring to Harpa? Um, first of all, I think, most importantly, things that are good. I think sort mm-hmm. of... Quality, it doesn't really, I mean, the Iceland Symphony does a lot of different things. And that's sort of, I think that's maybe one of our characteristics if you compare mm-hmm. us to, you know, because bigger cities sometimes have many orchestras or at least mm-hmm. many orchestras in the region mm-hmm. that can specialize a little bit more. Right. We're the only symphony orchestra in Iceland. So <laughs> we need to cover a whole lot of different stuff. So, you know, we do traditional symphonic concerts. We do a lot of contemporary music, new music, both Icelandic but also foreign contemporary mm-hmm. uh, film scores. We collaborate with, with pop singers. I mean, we've done concerts with, with Björk and, mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. kinds of, you know, popular musicians. Yeah. Um, and so really, no matter what we do, I feel like my main job is to make sure that we're doing it at the top level possible. Mm-hmm. That we get, mm-hmm. you know, the best conductors, the best soloists, uh, the, the best programs that we could possibly offer. Um, and it's gone amazingly well, I think I have to say. I mean, Harpa is now about to become 10 years old. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it, it sort of changed everything in terms of the musical life of Reykjavik, especially for the orchestra, to have yeah, a first-class concert hall. I was going to say to have its home and to have yeah, it be yeah. such a beautiful home. And, you know, it's, it's a magnet for, for foreign musicians who mm-hmm. want to come here because they think this is one of the best halls in the world. Right. Um, and so being able to sort of guarantee music making at that high level that's that's really a, a passion of mine I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to accomplish that I think how would you describe the role to someone who is interested in becoming an artistic advisor like wh- what did you do to get to this place what would you suggest someone else do um I applied <laughs> for a job <laughs> um great first step <laughs> <laughs> um well yeah the, the orchestra was was looking for for someone actually they had had one person who was doing two things. One was sort of looking after the, the artistic side and the other sort of m- the more practical side of running the concerts in a way, mm-hmm. m- making sure, you know, that uh, hotel rooms were booked and contracts mm-hmm. were signed and all mm-hmm. those things. And when she retired, they split the job into two uh, positions uh, and I applied for one of them, which was more the artistic one. Mm-hmm. And so my job is basically to uh, come up with ideas, uh, come up with programs, be in touch with sort of have a feel for the the music scene in a way right. to know what conductors are 
are good and bad, who's up and coming, you know, to, to sort of, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, have a sense of that all. And then to be in touch with artist managers mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. find, you know, I'm sort of managing the calendar in a way. I see. To, you know, offer, you know, is, is this conductor free this week to do this, etc. Got it. So it seems like creative, but also logistical and... Exactly, creative and yeah. logistical. How do you feel like, do you have to kind of have your finger on the pulse of what people are looking for as an audience as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also work together with, there's a, a sort of program committee mm-hmm. in the orchestra, which is made up of uh, myself, a team from the office, including the marketing people, which is very important to have their input as we put together the program. You know, yeah. what do they think will sell? Right, 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 uh, right. How do we, you know, to, to have an idea of how we market a concert as we are conceiving it. I is very see. important. I see. Instead of coming up with the idea and then going to the marketing department and say, can you possibly sell this? It sounds almost like you were describing of, you know, you can hear the idea of something, mm. but then when you hear the thing itself. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You don't want that layer of and abstraction also, between the two. Right. <laughs> and then we also have musicians actually from the orchestra as part of the program committee. So they are also bring their input. So my uh, role is also in a way to sort of mediate between mm. all the different ideas and sort of negotiate and, and until we reach a solution that everyone is happy with, the orchestra, the office, the marketing department, and the conductors and the soloists, because oh, wow. often, you know, they will have their own suggestions. Of, you have to be very diplomatic. Right, sure. That, you know, they, they want to do this symphony, or a violinist will say, you know, I really want to come to Iceland, but this season I'm only playing three violin concertos. And we need to choose one of those. And <laughs> then like, we, you got one of these options, right. that's it. And then we need to make sure that, you know, no one no one is playing the same concerto twice. We don't have the same concerto twice right, in, right, the same, right. or the same symphony. Or that we're not doing too much too much Schumann or not too right. much Mahler or, you know, right. or that there's no Mozart in an entire season. I mean, there are all <laughs> these... Can't have a season without Mozart. Right, exactly. But, you know, there are all these logistical <laughs> things that, you know, we, we need to take care of. Right. Mm. How do you balance that with then, like the research side? Because when you went into musicology, did you anticipate that then you'd be working as an artistic advisor? Or did you think no. you'd be more of an academic? Yes. Well, yes. I thought I would be more of an academic. I was also I, I trained as a pianist actually oh. originally uh, in the in the states. I moved to the states when I was nineteen. For, oh my goodness. Uh, college and then graduate school in the states. Oh wow. So, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, and so I, I trained first as a pianist at the Oberlin Conservatory in Ohio. Oh my goodness, and, I visited Oberlin. I was debating a, going there. It's a great place. That's wonderful. Um, and then I went to graduate school at Harvard and and went into musicology there. Mm. So I always thought uh, my my double life, as I imagined it then, would be an academic slash performer. Oh. Um, and then sort of, I still perform sometimes, but it's turned out to be more sort of academic slash uh, artistic administrator. How did that changeover happen? Um, pretty much when I when I got this job, yeah. it was sort of I mean I just thought it was it was too exciting not to do it um, because I mean being in charge of the artistic side of an orchestra of this quality but also of this sort of importance in this community yeah. I mean the Iceland Symphony is really central to musical life in Iceland you really have. Uh, of the, the chance to shape almost an entire musical culture right. through what this orchestra presents uh, and that's a that's a fantastic challenge I mean I couldn't I couldn't pass on that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say that's that's a lot of responsibility it is yeah it's it's but it's it's fantastic and I'm really lucky that my my colleagues here at the office are also 
very understanding of the fact that I also have this sort of other life as, yeah. as a scholar. Yeah. Um, and, and they sort of, uh, they allow me the flexibility mm. to, to sort of go in and out as needed. And that, you know, when I get, you know, the final proof for my book, Yes. I may not be in the office much that day. You That's know? what I was wondering um, is because writing a book is it's arduous because most sure. people are balancing teaching and writing. Mm, yeah. And so that's different because then right. you're like, oh, well, I might have office hours, but then I can dip yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this sounds like a really like full time and very engaging mm. position. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it, it requires a lot of flexibility on everyone's part, but mm-hmm. mostly I would say my colleagues part <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, and they're lovely. So I, I can't praise them enough. Oh, it's very interesting speaking to you about that, about it being the flexibility of colleagues, because mm. a lot of the people that I've interviewed prior have been American. Right. And there's such a different culture there in regards to work. Yes. Uh, because it sounds like with you, it's more that your work is very accommodating of mm. the fact that you have this other passion that actually is related to your studies. Yeah. Whereas in America, a lot of people end up going into a second thing because of like economic necessity. Right. Where it sounds like yours was much more based upon like choice and yeah, passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think also, I mean, I'm I'm fortunate that my colleagues realize that the research I'm doing is also beneficial in a way to to the Icelandic musical culture that mm-hmm. the symphony is here to serve and nurture. Right. Uh, right. That you know I'm doing research on Icelandic music, Icelandic music history. My knowledge of that will inform my capability to do my job. Exactly. Well, for the orchestra, uh, the fact that our audiences maybe have read my books and are knowledgeable about music and mm-hmm. and sort of you know in a have a have a deeper understanding of it through reading about it right. will make them a better informed audience, which means they'll maybe come to concerts more often or enjoy them more or sort of have a deeper understanding of things. Yes. So uh, it all sort of feeds into one another in a way that's difficult to describe, but is definitely there somehow. Well, and it's, it's less tangible than if someone says, oh, you will do X, mm-hmm. it will produce Y, and someone will pay for X or Y. Exactly. Whereas it's like, you will do X, it will make Y, then Z will happen. Right. We might loop back around to A, mm-hmm. and then, but it seems more of like an ecosystem as opposed to a chain of command. Exactly, exactly. And I'd imagine, especially the way that you describe that composer's music, I'm looking at the book now, mm. um, especially if it is more dissonant and modern. I, I don't know if this is true of Icelandic audiences, but I found that with American audiences, it does help to know either the theory or the history behind sure. such music, as it often doesn't evoke the same kind of, as we were talking about, like the Romantic era, where it might evoke emotions in a quite naturalistic way. Whereas if someone actually reads your book, they might have a better understanding of, oh, this is what I'm coming into here. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> I remember the first time I heard uh, Schoenberg, I was like, oh, wow, it sounds like a cat walking on a keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> then I actually studied the 12-tone scale, and I was like, oh, this yeah. is actually quite interesting. Exactly. <laughs> It'd be quite fortuitous if a cat yeah. made this. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, definitely, the, the, more, the more you know, the more you appreciate what you hear. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's also part of my, my job, in a way, uh, is I write often program notes for, for the concerts oh. and give pre-concert talks. I see. Um, and so I'm, I'm really, I have a, a really good dialogue with our audience. I mean, you know, oh. they, they read yeah. my writings regularly. They, they see me. They come to my lectures. That's actually what I was wondering um, is, like, it sounds like you really have a connection with them. Yes, exactly, yeah. which, is, which is wonderful. And it also gives me the opportunity to, to listen to them and what their thoughts are, what they feel we should be doing 
more of, less of, etc. Right. Uh, right. So I think it's it's probably not many people in my kind of position with orchestras have that kind of a relationship because yeah. they're more sort of office-based and then they will outsource the program notes well, and, and the, more the pre-concert talks. Exactly. Like. Uh, but I think it actually is incredibly beneficial to have that kind of a contact with your audience. Do you think that it would be possible on a larger scale? Like, because you said, obviously, this is like the only symphony orchestra mm. in Iceland. And it is like a smaller community. Do yeah. you think that it's possible to do that in bigger communities? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think it's just a question of of orchestras maybe being more flexible with their <laughs> with their employees, <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, not not all artistic administrators will be music trained musicologists, right. uh, but some of them are. And yeah. obviously, yeah. most of them are incredibly knowledgeable about yes. music and music history and the repertory. Uh, so I'm sure that you know many of them have the skills to to do these kinds of things that I do as well. Yeah. And I think it would it would definitely be beneficial. Yeah, because it sounds like especially both of the fields that you're talking about sometimes have, uh, I guess, the reputation of being removed, mm. like either being an advisor or being an academic. Right. They both kind of have the implication of you're kind of you're distanced from your audience or you're kind of off doing something yeah. by yourself. And, you know, and then you kind of come back with the treasures you found and share them with others. Yeah. Whereas it sounds like you actually have more of a dialogue back and forth. Right, exactly. I think that's maybe also just part of the way Icelandic society works in a way. I mean, it's it's so easy to connect to people or mm-hmm. groups of people. Uh, and I mean, we're all, I mean, we're only 350,000 people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're all doing three or four different things because society just needs... It facilitates that. It, ...us to function that way. Right. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's great. I'm, I feel very fortunate to be in the position I'm in. That's wonderful. Did you find, um, when you were in America, how did you find the culture to be when you were studying there? Like, what led you to then come back here? Like, what was what was kind of the journey there? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the reason that I went to the States in the first place was, well, I had some family there. My aunt and uncle lived in, in New York, but I went to a summer course, actually, in oh. Interlochen in Michigan. Oh. Uh, for two summers and I sort of got intrigued and they had these sort of college fairs and I came home with a suitcase full of brochures from all kinds of colleges and I was sort of thinking well maybe maybe I'll I want to do something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. along those lines and and I realized that Oberlin had a program where you could do sort of you could major both in performance and music history and I mm-hmm. sort of knew already uh, as a teenager that I didn't just want to become a pianist mm-hmm. and I always mm-hmm. had that sort of uh, eagerness to learn more about music in its historical, theoretical sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I did my studies in the States, and then sort of around the time I was finishing my PhD, uh, the Iceland University of the Arts opened a music department, which oh. there hadn't been a, a music department at the university level in Iceland. Oh, so that facilitated um, maybe and, why I and got it. they basically even before I finished my degree they offered me a job <laughs> to come back uh, so so I did um, and I taught there for four or five years mm-hmm. before I moved to the symphony mm-hmm. uh, I've I've maintained a good contact with the university so mm-hmm. I 
I'm a visiting professor there now, so every once in a while I'll go back and teach a course if I have the time, mm -hmm. um, especially on uh, Icelandic music history. Mm -hmm. um, so, so uh, I sort of I maintain that that contact, but obviously I'm not with all the other things I'm doing. I'm not able yeah, to teach very much. Yeah, I was going to say much. you'd never sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's also very nice to to go back into that environment once Aww. in a while because I mean teaching is is I mean it's also important for an academic to also. Uh, keep keep in shape in a way I mean yeah. it's, a, it's sort of like a muscle that you need to you don't want to lose to sort of you know be in touch with students and yes. interact on that kind of level and yeah. it seems like you get some of that didactic stuff out with your audience but it is sure. much different when it's university students yeah, that yeah. are taking a course for Absolutely. a particular reason that's a that's a much deeper level and yeah in a way obviously a much more satisfying level for a teacher yeah. uh, than than to to you know be doing the sort of more informal things that a right. symphony orchestra audience will involve. Do you think you ever would go back more to teaching? Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. But for now, exactly. for now, I'm, I'm <laughs> very happy <laughs> the, way, the way I have things set up. Do you ever miss performing at all? Um, not really, because I, I mean, I do it every once in a while enough mm -hmm. so that I feel like I haven't quite let go of it. Got it. Um, I try to play a bit every day mm -hmm. um, and so yeah I, I feel like that's not quite something that I've completely left behind in my past Got it. yeah there's some people that I've talked to that I'm, I'm more of a studio rap myself mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. I love composing and arranging and and then when I have to perform I'm like <gasps> people right, right. <laughs> but I know a lot of musicians who their big thing is performing that if you took yeah, performing yeah, yeah. away from them yeah I, w I was never quite that person, but I will say, sort of, performing, I found that performing got easier the more I did of it. Got it. Uh, and sort of, I was, I was more nervous in my early years as a mm. student, and then, you know, with, you know, five, six, seven years of experience of just doing it, yeah, it got yeah. a lot less scary and a lot more enjoyable. Well, that's that's the whole thing is your your body kind of adjusts to scary things where after a while it can't maintain that yeah, level of scared. Yeah. yeah, yeah. After a while, you just right. sort of burn out on being scared. Your sure. body's like, well, I guess this hasn't killed me yet. So exactly. I'll just I mean, keep. You, well, you sort of realize, you know, after going through some concerts. I mean, obviously, you know, concerts are, you know, some will go better than others, and that's <laughs> yes. just the way things are. But in the, you realize at the end. I mean, or at some point, you realize. Uh, I mean. It can't go terribly wrong. I mean, you know, it <laughs> right. can only go so wrong. There's only so uh, poorly it can go. Right, and and so you know, and it's never it's never that bad. It's no. never as bad as you fear. So. No. But I will say, I always found that playing chamber music or sort of interacting with other people on stage, I found a lot more satisfying than Been being so there all by myself. Yeah. Uh, so I've tried to keep that up. I mean, I don't really do solo recitals anymore, but mm. I. I do really enjoy playing chamber music with friends. Oh, where do you play around town? Uh, sometimes here in Harpa, actually, uh -huh. um, and and sort of smaller museum-ish venues mm -hmm. in in Reykjavik. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you ever go up to? I was listening to another interview with someone that said that like there's a whole new music scene really in Akureyri. Yes. Is that how you say it? Akureyri. I've completely massacred <laughs> it. <laughs> it's all right. I was kind of adjacent to how mm. that's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> how would you describe the music scene up there? I heard that they were doing a lot of like uh, film composition and whatnot. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, they have sort of uh, the other 
symphonic orchestra in Iceland, uh-huh. but it, it's sort of it's it's part time. It's much smaller. It also relies on a lot of people actually from the Iceland Symphony. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've sort of, uh, I mean, they've they've branded themselves in a very clever way because I mean, obviously, it w- wouldn't really be s- smart for them to to sort of go into direct competition with the Iceland y- Symphony. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, Whereas, you know, they, they, they clearly, I mean, they don't have the funds, they don't have the resources for that kind of an operation. They also seem quite uh, remote from how yeah, left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's about, I don't know, it takes maybe about 40 to 50 minutes to fly there. Okay. Um, but they've sort of branded themselves as a film music orchestra uh, and, and television music and scores. Mm-hmm. And, and they do quite a lot of work there, which is, which is great. It That's cool. It creates a lot of work for Icelandic musicians, some from the orchestra, but also some that, you know, aren't part of the orchestra and yeah. have have a good sort of side career playing film music in Northern Iceland, which is fantastic. I was going to say it looks quite beautiful if mm. I could imagine, I could imagine working there and every, everything looks rather epic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say is like kind of the best thing that you've gained from your academic work? Like what do you think is the most fulfilling thing that you've you've done so far in that arena? You mean in terms of a general viewpoint or actual concrete work that I've done? Um, well, I know that you're quite proud of the books. And so I've like, we've talked about that, but kind of like what, I guess more abstractly, like what do you mm. feel is most fulfilling that you've been studying? Um, well, I guess anytime that I make some kind of, I, I don't know, there are so many discoveries that you make where you sort of you connect dots and mm-hmm. all of that you didn't realize were connected and all of a sudden you know some area that had been problematic sort of opens up for you comes or into you, focus yeah yeah um and that that's happened a lot with all kinds of different research that I've, I've done and so sort of you know having a having a problem that you're actually able to solve <laughs> yeah, is, is just incredibly <laughs> fulfilling as a scholar um, and yeah, that, that's, I guess that's sort of what keeps me going. Um, and just sort of understanding more, discovering things, writing about things that no one's written about before, uh, is, is very exciting. We don't have, I mean, musicology doesn't have a long tradition in Iceland. We haven't had sort of in the 20th century, we didn't oh, have, like you mentioned that they didn't even have the music department. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we actually have quite a bit of catching up to do in terms of just, dealing with researching chronicling our own history in a way Mm. um and it's great to be in an environment because i mean uh you know in so many other countries it feels like the the market and i don't mean that just in a sort of you know market economy way but Mm -hmm. the, the market is sort of saturated the research has the basic research has been done right what else are you going to write about bach you know, that hasn't all, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas here, I mean, the field is sort of completely open. Yeah. Uh, there's so much basic research that still needs to be done. So I feel like, uh, I mean, I'm hoping that the University of the Arts will actually uh, sort of maybe become a bit more serious with their, their sort of mu- a musicology program, if they mm-hmm. could build up something whereby we could train younger students to become musicologists to, to sort of help us yeah. deal with this history that is quite interesting and needs to be written. 
I was wondering about that, if whether it's scholars that are already in Iceland or international scholars would want to come and right. chronicle and study. And yeah, unravel. I think both. And I think especially the sort of the youngest, well, the, the younger generation of Icelandic composers now, yeah. uh, like Anna Thorvaldsdóttir and Daniel yeah. Bjarnason, the, of yeah. the sort of classical composers, are, I mean, they're gaining a lot of interest internationally. Yes. Also from scholars yes. who want to research their music and write about it sort of academically. Uh, which is great, uh, but it would be great if we had Icelanders as well who were working yeah, on who were interested. Uh, yeah, 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 because I do find people perceive Icelandic music as being very particular, but also it's very well known internationally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I could see that they'd be kind of like the gateway. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But then I mean the thing is, and sort of you know for international scholars, I mean the 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 difficulty is always going to be the language. I mean, yes, you know Icelandic. I'm sorry to say it's a hard language. <laughs> <laughs> how, how would you compare it in regards to learning to English? Because English is, as a second language, apparently quite difficult mm. to learn. Um, I think grammatically, Icelandic is more complex. Mm-hmm. Icelandic is quite similar to German oh, in terms of sort of mm, the way the, the grammar is set okay. up. Uh, so, yeah, a, sort of a similar, similar level of difficulty to German. I see. I see. Yeah. So yeah, the language barrier probably that would be tricky. In your other field, like, what's the most fulfilling thing you've done working with the Iceland Symphony? Um, well, one of the most fulfilling, I would say, was sort of preparing and arranging for the move into Harpa in 2011. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which was, you know, it was huge, and we had, you know, a month-long festival of all kinds of fantastic events, mm-hmm. uh, and. And sort of, you know, I mean, working on the large-scale uh, projects that we mm-hmm. do every once in a while. Like next spring, we'll be doing the first Icelandic performance of Richard Wagner's Die Valkyrie, oh. which has never been done here. And obviously, it's like a huge project that we're doing in collaboration with the Icelandic Opera and the Reykjavik Arts Festival. Oh, wow. Um, and sort of putting together these really massive projects and seeing them become reality seeing is, them come to is wonderful. Uh, also, um, I would say commissioning new Icelandic works, mm-hmm. uh, being sort of the facilitator of new music being commissioned by Anna Thorvaldsdóttir or Daniel mm-hmm. Bjarnason, mm-hmm. uh, that have then gone on to have great international careers being yeah. played by the Berlin Philharmonic or the New York Philharmonic, uh, and sort of uh, having sown the seeds for those kinds of things yeah. is, is wonderful. I was gonna say it's so fascinating. The more you speak, the more it's so interesting that you look backwards to look forwards. Mm-hmm. It's really cool to see how those two dovetail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, what what would you tell someone who's kind of either like your younger self or someone in a similar position to you, where you're like, oh, I've studied all this music history, or oh, I really want to be an artistic director. Like, mm. what would you tell someone? What would you advise them? What would you even tell your younger self? Like, by the way, in about ten years. Right. Ah, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think there are there are several things that go into I don't know being a successful artistic administrator. I mean, you need to have uh, a big control of the repertoire. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess one of the things that I've been fortunate with is that I've just gone to a lot of concerts ever since I was a kid. You mm-hmm. know, my my parents used mm-hmm. to take me to concerts, etc. Um, and and you know studied a lot of music and music history and 
and and listen to a lot of music. I'm just sort of you know you need to you need to have a passion for that, and then eventually mm-hmm. you know you'll just know the repertoire, which is important because you need to be able to have these discussions with conductors or soloists yes. or musicians yes. about you know what's out there. Yes, um, and you need to be able to sort of negotiate and sort of you know keep your ground in a way and sort of know mm. know what you want not just accept ideas or you you want to solicit ideas from swayed. them but yeah yeah but you want to have your firm ground to, yeah. to stand on um, so that's important but also I mean obviously because so much of this also is just a question of interpersonal relationships and you know keeping a dialogue keeping an open mind being able to sort of uh, maintain a, a sort of uh, civil courteous dialogue yeah. going that sort of interpersonal skills are also very important and uh, yeah I don't think I, I don't think you can stress that enough actually <laughs> in the job that I do because uh, I mean musicians are fantastic people but I mean they all they they tend to have uh, you know I mean they they have egos they're they're soloists yes. they're they yes. They they're in music because they need to express themselves, but that also uh, it leads to a, a cultivation of a certain kind of personality. I was going to uh, say that, that when you have that many people expressing themselves, right? Exactly. <laughs> so so these are these are people that are incredibly expressive. They have really strong ideas and convictions <laughs> yes. about what they do and why they're doing it, um, and they also have sometimes big tempers and you know mm. need to be dealt with in a in a delicate way I see um, and that I think that was a big learning curve for me sort of going <laughs> into this job I'm, as I'm sure it is for many people uh, but I think once you realize that and once you're sort of able to manage it yes uh, that contributes a lot to one's success in a job yes. like this I was actually wondering when you were talking about that if you'd encountered any kind of like adversity in either field, like any roadblocks in your academic or professional. Mm, not really. <laughs> uh, I know that sounds. You're really like, strange. nope. It's all been charmed <laughs> and enchanted. Um, Everything's gone brilliantly. Well, I mean, the roadblocks <laughs> are just sort of you know the ones that come up. Not that not that you know other people put something in your way, but I mean, just you know sometimes. Sometimes research can be difficult, or you know, mm-hmm. you're not finding the stuff that you you wanted, or you right. know, you, or you know, you you're not inspired to write the kind of text that you wanted to write, or whatever. Um, so sometimes finding the inspiration for that can be a challenge. Difficult, yeah. Um, and sometimes, I mean, also, I guess the difficulty also on the on the symphony orchestra side is uh, the difficulty of being in a small isolated environment like Iceland obviously mm. is. Um, you know, I can't just drive for half an hour and hear the New York Philharmonic right. when I want to. Right. Um, and so one thing that's been crucial for me in, in both my careers is, like I said before, having this flexibility, both as an academic and as an administrator, to, to travel, mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to be in other places, experience other cultures, uh, get the feel for the music scene in other places because the only times that you know the great conductors and the soloists of the world, the musicians of the world will come to Iceland is if I bring them here. Uh. 
but I don't know who they are <laughs> until I decide <laughs> yeah. to bring them here. You have so, to go and find them. <laughs> yeah. So so I've I've actually been able to to travel a lot and sort mm-hmm. of maintain a, a presence in other places mm-hmm. as well. And actually, I mean this this academic year, I'm actually not in Iceland very much at all. Oh, wow. uh, I'm a visiting scholar at Yale University. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm mostly based in New Haven and I'm attending concerts obviously in New York and yeah, Boston yeah, yeah. Uh, frequently. Oh, wow. And you know, so those kinds of things, both in terms of my academic work and the work that I do for the symphony, are incredibly important because, I mean, as wonderful as Iceland is, it's a small yeah. place that's far away from many other places, you know what I mean? Yes, I think so. that it has this like rarefied air about it because yeah, of that. Yeah. I think that that's what draws people it, to it, but also sure. you are isolated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think our one of the things that has, has led to this amazing development of the Icelandic music scene is that you know we've, we've done our own thing in a way. We mm-hmm. sort of have an identity our specific way of doing things. Yes. But we were also able to bring in influences from outside, cultivate relationships to the outside world to a certain extent. And I think the the combination of these two things is what has made musical life in Iceland so successful. Yeah, it kind of strikes me, like even thinking about being at Airwaves itself, yeah. Like that there's a really wonderful dovetailing between, I, I feel like I've used the word dovetailing like 17 <laughs> times, but it keeps coming to my brain, <laughs> of kind of like the international music scene with the Icelandic music scene. Yes. And also it seems like there's a lot of crossover between the classical music scene and then the mainstream music scene. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like there's not as much differentiation, whereas in other cities there really is sure. kind of a divide. Yeah. Well, I think that's partly just because of the, the size and the nature of sort of the community mm-hmm. in Iceland. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's a small enough community that, I mean, among musicians, we all know each other. Right. We all went to school with each other or with <laughs> yeah. each other's siblings yes. or studied with each other's parents or whatever. Uh, we all played chamber music together in high school or what, you know. Uh, and so the, there, are, there are no barriers when it comes to you know different genres of music because right. you know we're, we're all friends and we all hung out together when we were 10 <laughs> exactly. and so you know we all have each other num- each other's numbers yeah. and you know the the pop artists can call their classical violinist friends exactly. and vice versa exactly and and that that creates a really interesting kind of melting pot do you ever find that you kind of have to i guess in like a marin Wow, that was not a word. American parlance, there we go. It's like code switching where it's like you're in one world and then you're in the other and yeah. you might use like different kind of social mores or language. Do you find that you have to do that when you are going internationally to different places or that you find yourself interacting differently with musicians, say, at Yale than here? In a way, probably a lot of it is subconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and it, yeah, it's really hard to put your finger on what exactly that is. Uh, but I think I think maybe just every every culture has its own sort of codes or signs yeah. or ways yeah. of expressing things or talking about things. Um, and the fact that I've you know that I studied in the states means that I'm completely used to that kind of expression yeah. as well. Uh, so I I probably make the switch without ever really noticing it. Ah. Um, but now that you've mentioned it, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay attention to it next time <laughs> I'm in that kind of situation. Yeah, <laughs> I was curious how that would manifest because you're interacting yeah. with people. I mean, um, it's, it's maybe partly a question of vocabulary. Mm-hmm. 
partly a question of just expression, mm -hmm. uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And it's, uh, I guess, partly, I, I mean, Icelanders can be fairly reserved, I mm -hmm. would say. Um, it needs it needs more to sort of, I don't know, get out the, the really passionate side, but it's there. It's it just there. needs to needs to be teased out a little bit more carefully. Um, whereas uh, American musicians will be sort of more blunt. We're, more we're like the Labradors or Golden Retrievers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. We're just going to uh, run right up to you. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's great. But it's just a different way of functioning. I mean, these are very subtle things. I mean, they're not mm -hmm. too obvious, but I guess you can. You can put your finger on them, I guess. Because, yeah. yeah, I would imagine between being in, like, the different worlds of academia and then at the symphony, but then on, like, both levels, then being in different cultures. Yes. I was like, gosh, that must get kind of confusing personally. Right, right. <laughs> well, is there anything, I guess in closing, is there anything that you'd want to tell people about either the upcoming season or about the books? Because I can link to those in the description sure. of Podcasts well, book the book is called Jon Lifts and the Musical Invention of Iceland, and it's published by Indiana University Press, mm -hmm. and it came out last week, so it's Congratulations. fresh off the press. Um, the Iceland Symphony is, well, we're, we're touring Germany and Austria next week. Mm -hmm. We're touring the UK in February. Mm -hmm. We have a new CD coming out uh, with an American label called Sono Luminous oh, wow. in November, later this month oh, wow. called Concurrence. Cool. which has new Icelandic music played by Icelandic soloists and conducted by an Icelandic conductor. Wow. It's, it's going to be a great CD, so people yeah. should look out for that. Um, and yes, if people are ever in Iceland, the symphony orchestra plays concerts usually on Thursday evenings mm -hmm. in Harpa, which is Reykjavik's mm -hmm. uh, concert hall, uh, from September through May. Oh, so wow. So, welcome. I was going to say, that sounds... Perfect. And then oh, they get a summer vacation. Yeah. Well, thank you again for joining me Thanks very much. on Why Not Both. This has been awesome. Thank you.